Our scripture reading tonight is again taken, as it was this morning, from the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians. We're going to read in the fourth chapter, a section of the fourth chapter from verse 25, and actually we'll read also the first two verses of chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. So verse 25 of chapter 4 through 5-2, it's on page 18-22 in the Pew Bibles, page 18-22. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And notice how sandwiched, you might say, in the midst of these exhortations, the apostle rather strikingly in verse 30, echoing the prophet Isaiah, says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. May the Lord bless this reading and our hearing of his word tonight. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm entitling, just as I commented on my title this morning, I begin with a comment on my title this evening, I speak to you under the general rubric, Living Under the Smile of the Holy Spirit. Now, I have to tell you, I got that from a Christian preacher by the name of Kent Hughes, so I don't want anyone to accuse me of not acknowledging my sources, but it was a lovely phrase, and I think it captures very well the sense of this verse, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed, that recalls language the apostle had used already in the first chapter regarding their having been sealed for the day of redemption. It's a reminder to us that the Spirit whom Christ has given to us and who dwells the church the way God was present among His people in the Old Testament temple, the church is a temple, the fulfillment of the temple, a place of the dwelling place of God in the Spirit, that the Spirit is one of the three persons, and therefore able to be witness to what you do and say, and to either smile upon it or frown upon it find it grievous, displeasing, unsettling. Remember, I was teaching my oldest grandson uh, the children's version of the Shorter Catechism, and there was this question, in how many persons does this one God exist? And the answer was, in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, 
and God the Holy Ghost. And he looked at me and he said, Ghost, Grandpa? Uh, I think that was a childlike way of bearing testimony to what often is true of us when we think of the Spirit. There's something mysterious about His person and His presence. But one thing is very clear. The Apostle Paul wants us to be aware in terms of our conduct as those who are in Christ and indwelt of the Spirit of Christ and being conformed after the image of Christ, that children, just as your parents, father and mother, take note and either smile or frown, so also the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ who is given to us. I have to add this just now. It occurs to me. Uh, I used to tell this story back in the church I served in Ontario, California, because there was a service in the evening, and I'm behind the pulpit holding forth and conducting the service, and my wife is at the uh, organ bench, and there are four little children, our children, sitting in the front row. And it's mayhem. (laughs) Things are not going well with the children. And so uh, Nancy turns, even as she's playing, and looked at them with such a frightening expression of displeasure that they suddenly were like soldiers at attention. I I used that to good effect in the congregation thereafter, much to my wife's dismay, but she's not here this evening, so I can say that. So this is something that we need to bear in mind as we run through this passage this evening. Those who are members of Christ and dwelt of His Spirit ought to live in a way that in some measure brings delight and a smile to the Spirit who indwells us and is present among us. There's something else I want to say just in a general way quickly about this passage. Some of these exhortations seem so obvious, so ordinary, nothing unusual about them. They cover the whole range of what we do with our tongues, what we do with our hands, how we conduct ourselves in the ordinary affairs of your and my life. Well, that's a reminder to you that the whole of life, every word and deed that we speak, we speak in union with Christ and as those indwelt of the Spirit of Christ, And Christ wants to consecrate us to His holy service through and through, sanctifying our tongues, sanctifying our hearts, sanctifying our work, sanctifying all of what makes up the life that we live in His presence. Now, I have a third observation, and it's this. Remember our little gospel lesson this morning. The point of these exhortations, these imperatives, because it's almost exclusively this passage, in the imperative mood. Don't do this, do this. Put on this, put off this. We are not called, summoned to bring delight to the Holy Spirit of Christ who indwells us by doing these things in order to be saved. Because at some point or another, I'm going to step on someone's toes, myself as well, my toes, and uh, our consciences may be a little pricked in terms of what we remember of how we used our tongue and how we've behaved ourselves in relationship 
to one another. But it's all embraced within the gospel indicative. Remember, the Spirit is doing the very thing that God has prepared in advance that we should do, walk in good works. So the same Spirit who either smiles or frowns upon us is the Spirit at work in us. Another observation before we plunge in, and it's this. The metaphor in the immediate context is that those who are being conformed by God's grace and by the Lord Jesus Christ through His Spirit after the image of the Lord Jesus Christ are to put off the old self and put on the new. Now, some of you were at a wedding yesterday, and you know the pastor spoke from Colossians where Paul uses a similar metaphor of dressing up in a fashion that befits your identity as a member of Christ indwelt of the Spirit. I don't know if you've ever been at O'Hare Airport and done a bit of people watching in that international uh, hub. You'll notice that people are rather differently dressed depending upon their background, their culture, uh, their language, their customs. Well, there's a universal form of dress. It's not your Sunday best. There isn't such a thing any longer. We live in a casual world, and everyone is becoming more and more casual, and I'm becoming more and more out of date, so I'm to be put out to pasture soon. But in any case, you can think of what Paul is describing here is dress yourself in a manner that is befitting. Clothe yourself by getting rid of that old garment, that tattered set of rags that were characteristic of a life outside of Christ. And put on not your Sunday best, but your spirit-authored best that you may be adorned with the kind of life that befits. Remember your identity. It's always good to remember your identity and to dress accordingly. It's very interesting. I read some years ago an interesting column by Eppinga in the banner, Cabbages and Kings, and he was describing he wore a clerical collar. That was his custom. He says, it's an amazing thing, really. It gets the door open to you in some places, and in other places, shut. In some places, it gets people to open their mouth. In some places, it gets them to fall silent. My father had a bed and breakfast as a pastor in his retirement, and he said there were two kind of people. They found out he was a pastor. Oh, we'd like to talk to you about that. There were others. Oh, it was too bad we didn't know that the pa- there was a pastor here. He's going to be a killjoy, and it won't be a fine time on our vacation. But how you dress has much to do with your identity. And so, uh, maybe one last point. And you say, Dr. Venema, you're like you were this morning, too long with the introduction. Well, we'll run through it as quickly as we can once we get to it. But I do want to say this. In relationship to that comment I made about so ordinary, you find an interesting relationship in this passage between the New Testament law of Christ and the Old Testament law that God gave to His people through Moses at Sinai. There are echoes in Paul's imperatives of the commandments in terms of our use of our tongues 
things and the way we conduct ourselves, whether we steal or whether we work hard in order to help those, having been fruitful in our labor uh, with what we have been given. And that's an important thing because there's a spirit, and it's not the spirit of the Word of God around these days that, and in a variety of settings, that wants to pit law especially in its Old Covenant presentation from the New Covenant, which is in Christ Jesus. The only difference between the Old and the New is the greater and surpassing working of the Spirit in writing the law upon our hearts, engraving that law once engraven in stone tablets upon the flesh of your and my hearts. But now let's look together Remembering then what sort of pattern of life, how should we be adorned as those indwelt of the Spirit? What should we put off and what should we put on in terms of our life as believers in Christ? The first exhortation is to put off falsehood and by contrast to put on truthful speech. Paul puts it this way, Therefore, each of you, notice the therefore, as those who are in Christ, as those who are being made new by the working of His Spirit, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Now, you say to me, Pastor, well, that's pretty simple and ordinary to use the word you've used previously. Of course, we should put off falsehood, distortion of the truth, misrepresentation of what is actually the case. And we should be a truth-telling, truth-loving people. But in many respects, brothers and sisters, these are forms of dress and of behavior that are not simply ordinary. They're very close to the heart of the gospel. Why should Christians be persons of integrity in their speech? Because we serve Him who is the Amen, the faithful witness, who when His Word took on our flesh, He prefaced, remember that, our Lord in the Gospels, how often in the old English of the King James, it's, verily, verily, I say unto you. In the newer translations, they render it, as the God of the Amen come to us in His own Word, become flesh. He says, Amen, literally, Amen, I say to you. And whether you say the Amen or you don't say the Amen, let your words be truthful. It was the father of lies, you know, who drew us originally into sin. And his means was to insinuate... God said, did he? I say unto you, he's called therefore in the Gospels, the father of lies. This is a gospel question. Our Lord is the way, the truth in the life. His word is truth. He sanctifies us in the truth. And what a wonderful thing that is in this culture in which we now find ourselves. Where the lie, the big lie, in so many places and strata of our society, is the air we breathe. 
I mean, I don't, I don't want to get into the area of politics, but certainly there were, are not a few egregious illustrations of a distorting, manipulating, abusing on all sides of many of these debates and divisions, and you can't trust the leaders, civil magistrates. Are they telling the truth? Are they interested in the truth? If Christians who should be willing to pursue, if God calls them, a vocation in politics, what should distinguish them? Perhaps that's why they don't. They think it's not possible to be a truth-telling person of impeccable integrity and get anywhere because you can't make promises that everyone knows you're never going to keep. But that's true in a whole variety of ways, whether it be in advertising, whether it be in self-promotion, whether it be in the way we talk to each other, whether it be on the modern media, whether it's Facebook or what's the more recent one the kids are using, I forget it. I'm looking at Pastor Kerry, I think he probably knows because my wife rebuked me. She said, the kids aren't using Facebook any longer. You're, you're proving your age again. I said, well, I know, I, I'm just generalizing. There are all kinds of ways to magnify the lie in our culture. And here's the main point. Part of our testimony, what distinguishes us as we adorn the gospel with avoiding falsehood, loving the truth, large or small, that's a gospel testimony. That's one of the ways we can be salting salt in a culture that is becoming increasingly corrupt. It's a Christian virtue. You know, of course, that when Paul wrote this to the Ephesians in the Greco-Roman world, as in many parts of the world today, it's not really thought to be all that important whether you tell the truth. It's a Christian, biblical worldview conviction that we teach and speak and bear witness to the truth. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. We are to put off unrighteous anger, and if I may play with the Apostle Paul's language, put on anger if it be righteous. What are you saying, Dr. Venema? In your anger, says the Apostle, he quotes the psalmist, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. So you have to be careful here. Anger in response to unrighteousness and to misconduct is not itself to be condemned. What the apostle condemns is the nursing, the nourishing of unrighteous anger, an anger that the fires don't go out even when you lay upon your bed at night. You wake up in the morning and it's rekindled and it festers within you. You know, of course, that our Lord hates unrighteousness. When they turn God's temple into a house of thieves, He overturned the tables in righteous anger. And He could say things to the Pharisees that if we as pastors were to say anything of the sort, either to ourselves or others, we might be drummed out of the pulpit. 
You're like whitewashed sepulchers. Try that one out for size and see if you get on the long list for a possible call to the congregation. Uh, we prefer the pleasant and the kindly and the gentle, and I shouldn't say this, but the leading pastor in these United States with the largest audience on the Lord's Day has all of those virtues. Never an angry word. Never a frown of displeasure when the Word of God is treated with contempt. That's no virtue. That's no virtue. There is a legitimate righteous anger, but it must serve a righteous purpose and be effected in the way of righteousness. Uh, I came across this quote from a writer, a modern writer by the name of Frederick Beckner, who says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is probably the most fun. It's very alluring. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of the bitter confrontation that you are uh, hoping to have with the offender, to savor the last tooth to the last tooth, the morsel, both of the pain you will give and the pain you will give back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast, as he puts it, is you. And so those who are Christ's, members of Christ and dwelt of His Spirit, they are to be those who put off falsehood and love the truth and speak it accordingly, as well as those whose anger is for a moment and arises in the face of real unrighteousness, but are slow to anger and quick to show mercy. The third thing the apostle says to us here is that we should put off all forms of theft and put on a life of fruitful labor. I told you it's very ordinary. This is the way he puts it. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. It's very interesting how all of these don't do this, but do this. They always have not only a reference to what you are doing, but how what you do has a bearing upon others who bear God's image. So it's not just an encouragement to us not to be slothful, but to work where opportunity, assuming that opportunity is given, in order that with the fruit of your labor, you won't simply satisfy your own appetites, but you'll make use of what you have received from God by way of a rewarding of that labor to assist and to be helpful to those who are in need. I think sometimes Christians in our culture not only properly are concerned about those who would live off of the bread of others when they ought not to, who do not really think that they need to, shall we say, earn a living or 
pursue a lawful vocation and provide for themselves and their families. That's all, as Paul puts it here, proper and good. But do we share with and regard that which we receive by way of fruit upon our labor to be used to serve the causes of Christ's kingdom, to be employed to the advantage of those who may be in need, who are in a circumstance where we are ones, those who have been given much, who have the opportunity in turn to give much to others. So this is an encouragement in a culture, and it certainly was true in Paul's day. Not only was it a culture, you know, Paul has that little expression in one of his epistles, all Cretans are liars. That's a certain part. Crete, Cretans, a little politically incorrect on the part of the Apostle Paul to say such a thing, but he's reflecting the fact that there are cultures uninfluenced and transformed by the Christian gospel, where not only is truth-telling a relative matter of indifference, but the idea of working. I mean, in the Greco-Roman world in which Paul is writing, many in the church were probably from poorer classes within the society. But the aspiration of a Roman citizen was to live a life of idleness and have those who labor and work hard provide for that life of leisure. It's interesting, I think in our culture too, there is a sense in which uh, even if we work, it's a means to an end. The end being, I've got enough money uh, to provide for my own amusement and uh, for my own entertainment. I was a college student at Trinity Christian College, read a book by a sociologist, The Uncommitted. And the point of his whole book was in our society, increasingly people don't work as as a vocation or as a calling, whatever the work it may be. It doesn't have to be a high and mighty, a thought to be a great thing to which we might aspire. It may be very Again, ordinary work, but that's a noble thing. That's in itself a good thing, and it's not a means merely to an end. Since my wife's not here, I I can say things about her. I read something not long ago about somebody who had been doing something for, I don't know, 35 years, steady at the helm, ready to do what needed to be done. And I have to say, I admire my wife. She started playing the organ and piano in church at the age of 14. And I won't tell you how old she is, but she's been doing it for more than 50 years now. And I think she'll do it, God willing, until she can't do it any longer. And if you're wondering how well such persons are paid, I can tell you they don't do it for the money. They do it for the joy, the privilege, and the help that it provides God's people as they are accompanied in the worship of the Lord. Well, that's characteristic of the way in which people dressed by the Spirit, who are pleasing to the Spirit, not grieving the Spirit, that's 
how they work hard with their hands. But then we come to something again that has to do with the tongue. Do not let any unwholesome, the word is very strong, it means stinky, putrid, nasty. It's the sort of speech you hear sometimes when you're standing in line to get a ticket to go to the museum downtown Chicago. You want to say to that person, please, how much filth can come out of a mouth of a man or a woman pairing God's image in one hour? Clean it up. My, I'm old enough to remember. Parents were abusive when I was a kid. We used to have something called the washing of the mouth with soap. I suspect they'd report you today to the... Uh, it, I, I stand here today to bear it witness that it did me no harm. But it left a lasting impression. Let no such an... I had an occasion as a young lad and a teenager, and I said something like, holy cow. And you say, that's a benign thing, no big deal. My mother took exception to it, and she sent me to my room. And I would not apologize. She said, well, when Dad comes home, he's going to deal with this. And there I sat for several hours, and I was not going to change no matter what Dad said. Well, there's one who can change us, clean us up from the inside out, even our tongues, so that they become sanctified, consecrated vessels for God's praise and for a true witness. So let there not be in your mouth found unwholesome, putrid talking, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their need. I'm told that after the great father of the church, Augustine, was converted, he posted a sign in the kitchen or the area where they would eat with guests, and it said, no one is welcome at this table if they are intending to speak ill of persons absent from the table. <laughs> we probably all have to stay home because when they're absent, uh, it's just like the mice, when the cat's away, the mice will play. Well, when we think no one is hearing us, the Spirit hears it, bears it witness, looks upon it with favor or disfavor. Be careful what you say about that man or that woman who bears God's image, that brother, that sister for whom Christ shed His precious blood. If there's something that needs to be said, say it to them in gentleness, but let it be in love, edifying, building up. I also read somewhere that uh, there was a Christian a minister who was known for his wholesome, edifying speech, and it was said of him, uh, all of his geese are become like swan. You know Canada geese? Got those in your backyard or in the neighborhood. We have them in the parking lot at Mid-America. Disgusting creatures. No? Disgusting. All of his geese are become like swan. Now, that doesn't mean that you're a flatterer. That doesn't mean that you don't speak the truth, even if it hurts. But it does mean Love hopes all things, bears with all things. Love believes all things. 
So you're quicker to believe the good before you believe the bad. You are not a person who's anxious to get a morsel on someone to share with others. Now, it all comes to a head at the end, and there is hope for us. We shall come to a conclusion. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then you get a gospel exhortation that could not be spoken unless you were familiar with God in Christ. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. But be kind, compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. You see, this is not a a legal lesson in do's and don'ts. This is a summons to remember Christ and who He was and what He did and how He did what He did on your behalf and in your interest. Did He ever speak an untruthful word? Did He ever speak in a way that was intended to injure out of malice and maliciousness another? I mean, even the Pharisees, he calls them to repentance. He invites them to the feast too, if they would only come. He was kind. Paul says it in Ephesians 2, our passage this morning, his The kindness of His grace in Christ toward us was surpassing. It went beyond all expectation. Forgiving each other, not to be forgiven, but because forgiven. And not forgiven a little, brothers and sisters, forgiven much. Incalculable debts forgiven by our Lord Jesus Christ. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Now, you know, in the old practice of the Reformed churches, there was, after you had communion, something called the applicatory sermon. I'm not commending it necessarily. Every sermon should be a preparation for coming to communion. Every sermon should be an application of the communion that you enjoyed. But you can see how this bears upon us in the context of our having sat together this morning at the table of the Lord. And He welcomed us. He embraced us. He nourished us. He reminded us that we belong to Him and because to Him we belong, we belong to all those who are His in this place. So that we would cherish one another even as He cherishes us. We would deal with one another even as He's dealt with us. Not perfectly. But the closer you are to Him, the more familiar you become with how He has dealt with you, the more the gospel and what it produces will adorn your life. And you'll have the opportunity to answer to those who ask, What's the reason 
for the hope that is in you. Why do you behave the way you do? You can say, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you about someone. His name is Jesus. People nowadays, they use his name in vain. But his name is over oh, a thousand tongues to sing. His name is precious to me. This is what he's done. And this is what he will do for you if you will have him. Receive him. Trust in him. Follow after him. Become by the Spirit conformed to him. And Paul is giving us here just a little portrait, a kind of representation of the way we should put off that old tattered garment of the old man and be in the business of by the Spirit putting on the new so as to not grieve but please the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, help us to take to heart the word that you speak to us in this word of the Apostle Paul. May we see behind it the way in which Christ fulfilled all the law, how he exhibited all of those characteristics of obedience to your will as this is set forth in your law. And may, as those, may we as those who are indwelt of his spirit find ourselves more and more putting off the old self and putting on the new so that your name may be praised and we may live up to our identity as those who are your handiwork created in Christ Jesus for good works which you have prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Hear us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.